you know, whether you're a Kiwi or a visitor, you know, there's some amazing people that um, what we call trail angels that live along the trail who just basically live to help and support those that are walking it. You know, they put them up, they welcome them into their home, they give them a feed, they give them a shower, they can camp on their front lawn. And, and these people just are genuine good Kiwis who, who just love the concept and, and really just want to support people. Um, and so the North Island's very much about the people. And then the South, of course, as we all know, is very much about the, um, the environment and the, and the landscape, you know, and, and there are sections and in, in, in going back, a neat section is the Richmond Range is very challenging um, out of Nelson. But there's 10 days there where you, you know, you, there's no civilization for 10 days. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an enthusiastic and self-starting CEO who has overseen the growth of Olympic programs, serving the community through surf life-saving, and a guardian of the 3,000-kilometer Te Araroa Trail, which extends the length of New Zealand. He studied a Bachelor of Parks, Recreation and Tourism Management, majoring in Sport Management from Lincoln University. His career has included managerial roles at Surf Life Saving Otago and Surf Life Saving New Zealand, and has held CEO roles at Poverty Bay Rugby, Canoe Racing New Zealand, and currently Te Araroa Trust. In his spare time, he is the most successful team manager for the Blackfins Surf Life Saving New Zealand team, winning the 2012, 2014, and with a three-peat 2016 World Championship titles. I'm excited to bring you high-performing leader who is passionate about photography and loves spending time with his children in the great outdoors, whether it be fishing, hunting, diving, or camping. Mark Weatherall. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. That's a pretty pretty exciting uh, introduction, actually. I'm, I wasn't sure if you're talking about the same person for a bit. <laughs> no, mate, I'm pretty pumped up for this interview. We, we met each other on the beaches of New Zealand through surf life-saving 20-something years ago now. Uh, so pretty, it's a good times, and uh, this is going to be a fun one. Yeah, no, looking forward to it. I really appreciate the opportunity to be, uh, to be part of it. Can you tell us uh, what your childhood was like growing up in Otago, which for those who don't know where that is, is the deep south of New Zealand? Yeah, no, I was, I was very fortunate to, to grow up in a, in a really community-focused family, Craig. Um, I've got a, a brother who's um, four years younger and then a sister who's four years younger than, than him. And then, of course, my, my parents, mum and dad. And um, both um, my mum and dad were heavily involved in the community, especially my dad. You know, a huge background in rugby, um, surf life-saving in, in the Otago sort of province. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I guess we, we had no choice but to be involved in the community and, and you know, growing up and helping in, in all sorts of different areas, I guess. And, yeah, I'm real thankful for that, that opportunity. I mean, it's... Um, you know, there's so many good things that you get out of, of giving back to the community and, and that sort of set me up, I guess, for um, you know, for uh, the, the future as such. Yeah, so growing up around your know, many oceans, lakes and the backcountry must have been a lot of fun. You know, what was your most memorable moment from adventuring in the great outdoors uh, as a young child and teenager with your family? <clears throat> um, yeah, no, I mean, we, were, we grew up on the coast, uh, a place called Brighton, which is just out of Dunedin and... You know, I recall a lot of missions uh, out uh, out in the ocean, diving, um, you know, fishing, and um, we didn't spend a huge amount of time in the early days up in the sort of central Otago on the hills as such. But I guess as I grew up, you know, got more into hunting and and um, and a bit of tramping, and you know, really enjoyed, I guess, both the coast and and also the lakes and the rivers. And um, yeah, I, I mean, to answer your question, it would be that it would be that you know, time on the ocean, and um, whether that be uh, with surf lifesaving, uh, actively involved in, in lifeguarding, um, competing, um, or you know, in a rec- recreational sense, just out there fishing, catching plenty of blue cod, and and off the coast of Otago. Oh, you're making me jealous right now. 
So I'm curious, why did you decide to go to Lincoln University in Canterbury when you had the student capital of New Zealand of Otago University right at your back doorstep? Yeah, good question. Um, I guess I, I was on, I had two sort of career paths that I wanted to go down. One was to become a park ranger um, and that was the Lincoln, I guess the Lincoln uh, opportunity and the other thing I looked at was becoming a teacher. So I applied to College in Dunedin and applied to Lincoln and, and got accepted to both and I uh, had to make a decision and um, you know having grown up in, in Dunedin um, yeah a lot of my friends of course went off to Otago but you know I saw an opportunity to, to get away from home and uh, experience the world a little bit you know a little bit more so yeah I made the decision to go to Lincoln and, and you know I loved it you know it's are we all reflect on our university years and 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 you know I made some amazing friends and still have those people now. My first year was in the halls residence and out at Lincoln, you know, uh, and and the country and some of the hijinks we used to get up to were pretty um, memorable as such. So, you know, I yeah, I guess it was an opportunity to get away from Dunedin. I you know Dunedin's my home, it'll always be my home. But um, for me, it was it was the park ranger type. Um, career path I was sort of going to go down of course once I got to Lincoln then my eyes opened up a little bit and the degree that I was doing was very broad um, as you see in the intro parks recreation and tourism and and I guess you know I'd always had a strong background in sport and um, you know both administering and also competing and as I got more into it I thought well yeah maybe there's a career in in managing sport so I, I tailored my degree and the courses as I went through to be more focused on on that pathway and the park ranger thing was um was sort of parked yeah okay so you've talked a lot already around surf life saving you know so i want to want to dive into that for a little bit here you know it is more than just volunteering at your local surf beach and an organization that looks after its members through education advocacy and competition you know for you what does it mean to be a surf lifesaver and is there any sort of one story or moment that epitomizes what surf lifesaving is? Yeah, well, I, could, I could talk all day about surf lifesaving. I mean, I guess I started as a nipper, as a five-year-old. Um, Dad took me down to the local beach there and, and, and you know, never looked back, and that's nearly 40 years ago. Um, and in that time, I guess I've been really fortunate to hold a number of different roles in surf Um you know, actively um, patrolling, competing, um, administering, you know, team manager, official at our events, event manager at our, some of our big events. And, you know, I worked professionally for Surf Lifesaving for a number of years. And, um, you know, I guess for me, um, my children are involved now. And, and only last weekend I was on the beach managing my daughter and, and a group of her friends. And, you know, I guess for me it was the, um, the neat thing about surf, and it's like a lot of other organisations, I guess, but... You know, there's something for everybody. You know, you don't have to be the stereotype fit type person. You know, you can you can be whoever and, and find a, uh, your place or your niche within surf. And it's a family. You know, I guess I've been fortunate to travel the world. And you mentioned in your intro around the, the team manager stuff and, and working with, you know, the high-performing athletes and winning some amazing titles. But, but it does come back to, I guess, um, a key thing that we talk a lot about is, you know, those that are involved in the organisation are, are better people for being involved in it. Um, and I guess there's a number of life skills that you learn along the way, you know, from one end, you know, saving people's lives. And, you know, I've been involved in a number of big rescues and searches and all sorts of stuff um, from that side of it. But just being part of an organisation that is, is giving so much back to the community, I think is, you know, for me is, is the special part of it, um, to be honest. Yeah, so you, you go from being a volunteer to a paid district manager at Surfly Saving Otago. What was your biggest learning curve when you go from, you know, that volunteering space to now being paid where you're managing a, you know, a, a community, a much bigger community or a society of surf lifesavers? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I guess uh, I was the first full-time employee for Surf Life Saving Otago, and you know there were expectations and on that on that role and what it would be like. And the role itself, you know, was very much jack of all trades, and 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 you know you're pushed and pulled so many places you couldn't really um, do a good job of any any of it really because you were just trying to keep your head above water as such. And you know, I, I guess you know when you're working volunteers, um, you know. 
I like to think that I'm a very empathetic sort of person and understand that, you know, volunteers are very passionate. Sometimes they can be misguided with regard to their passion. And then, of course, you know, they have their, their day jobs and, and families to look after. So you've got to sort of be there when they're available to be there. And, and that can, you know, make, um, I guess, your normal sort of working day quite a different sort of working day because because of that. And, and I guess there's a, a real challenge in balancing your life when you're working in a role like that um, because you are working with volunteers and, and a lot of it's after hours, which is fine. I've never had a problem with it, but, but just keeping the balance because you can get all-encompassed in a role like that and become everything to everybody. And, you know, and when you're doing that, you're, you're not necessarily being that strategic. And, and, um, and that again, that's probably the biggest challenge I find in, you know, in a role, a not-for-profit or a volunteer-type organisation is it's very easy to get caught up in the, the day-to-day operational stuff and, and you lose sight of, of where you're heading and, and the strategic side of it. So clubs are the enablers in the in the world of surf life saving and you touched a, a little bit around the family aspect. What do you think is really important about developing a great club culture? Yeah, that good question. I mean, I was talking to some people last weekend actually and I've always been of the belief that unless you are... Um, you know, growing up with surf family members or a close friend, it's actually quite a difficult organisation to break into and, and with regard to the club. And to walk off the street, you know, to be honest, if you were to walk off the street here in Tauranga and go to a Manu Surf Club, you know, I'd like to think that we, um, you know, we had a very welcoming um, shop front as such and, and our members were welcoming those people that, you know, didn't necessarily grow up with it or, or, or come along with a friend because it is quite daunting, you know, and, one of the things when I was working at Surf, you'd, you'd often see in clubhouses that, you know, big sign on the front was members only, you know, and that, you know, that puts, I guess that would put off people pretty quickly. So, you know, I think to answer your question, you know, it's a, it's a club that is family orientated, um, that is welcoming, you know, that has good systems and structures in place and, you know, passionate people that are that are open to, to new people coming along and I think that's the big thing and, you know, I'm heavily involved with the Manu Surf Club and, and sit on the board and, you know, we often talk about that and um, it's easy to talk about it but the other thing, of course, is to actually do it because we do get caught up in, you know, a little world with our own little people and, and you know, it, it actually people need to make a real effort when they do see somebody coming who, who doesn't come from a surf background or, or through, you know, contact. So, it, you know, you have to go out of your way to to um, include those people and, and make them feel welcome. Mm. How important was growing up in surf life saving to you in relation to your leadership development? Oh yeah, look, I was fortunate, I guess, through the through the movement to attend a, a number of different um, leadership um, development opportunities. You know, back in the day. Um, I think my first leadership opportunity in a structured sense was in 1995 at a place called Flock House, which is in Palmerston North. It was a week-long uh, leadership development course for surf life-saving. You know, I think there were 60 or 70 people there. I was probably one of the youngest, and you know, um, uh, it was a bit of a challenging, um, a challenging workshop as such. And they, because of that, they didn't actually do one for a number of years after that. But um, but then, of course, I was invited to go across Australia and participate in some of their leadership uh, opportunities and. Um, and then, you know, post that um, was involved in Leaders for Life, which is a you know, very successful program that was set up uh, a few years ago now for surf life saving. And, and I often go back and speak to those young leaders and, and talk about my story. So I guess, you know, I was thrown into roles at club level early on in the piece, um, whether it be the paracraft officer or the gear steward or the, or the treasurer or the secretary or whatever it may be. So, um, yeah, again, I, I was a. I, I guess because of the family and, and looking at my father, you know, the, we were brought up to be leaders. I'm not a, um, I'm not a, um, I'm not a person that's uh, a dictator as such. You know, I'm a quiet sort of person that um, that is is really happy to empower other people to 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 be involved and and to get some stuff done. So, um, I've, along the way, I guess I've adapted and and as you do, keep changing and, and reflecting on your style. Uh, leadership but um yeah and at various times i can you know i can step up when i need to be, need to but um you know um, as i said I'm, I'm more of a person who likes to uh, and empower other people to to step up and, and to do stuff hmm. so you stepped up you know talking about stepping up and empowering people you you took on a national role at surf life saving in 2002 and turned your focus from developing clubs to managing the sport side of surf life saving 
you know, what purpose does sport play in a community of people who are there to prevent and save lives? Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, that's a good question. And, and you know, I, I spent a lot of time uh, at that, that, you know, when I first moved to Sifuwa, New Zealand, under the leadership of Jeff Barry, who, Jeff, you know, an amazing guy who I, you know, was one of my mentors and huge respect for. Jeff, you know, was <clears throat> come from a teacher's background and, uh, and he was the New Zealand coach in 1998 when the Blackfins first won the world title. So when he was the CEO, often people would look at him and go, oh, you know, you're going to be sport-focused and it's all going to become about the sport. Um, but it was quite the opposite, actually, with Jeff. You know, he was very aware of that and, and uh, it was very balanced. But I guess my point in, in that is that, you know, I'd sit around the, the, the table with the senior management and, you know, have to fight for and, and, and really push sport and its role in surf life-saving, you know, Often uh, the, the the discussion around the priorities between life-saving and sport was, was you know, was pretty heated. Um, but I guess where we got to, and it took me a couple of years, but the word that I, um, you know, come up with with regard to sport within surf life-saving was the word en- enabler. And sport enables um, us to deliver the service on the beach. So, you know, I'm a firm believer that um, without sport, as part of surf life-saving, then we would struggle to, to deliver service that we do do. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, I, I do believe that those that are um, you know, competing and, and training are going to be fitter and faster lifeguards. Um, but the other side of it, you know, sport's a huge retention um, tool for members within surf life-saving. You know, if you look at um, the membership in surf life-saving, I think it's around 17,000, you know, more than half of those are under 14-year-olds, um, and, and the majority of those um, you know, are participating in some form of surf sport uh, on a Sunday morning at their local club. And of course, as you as you get older, you progress through the through the ranks. And so, I think you know, sport's really, really important. You know, it's um, it, it definitely isn't challenged in the club sense. You know, I sit around the table at our club, and the cost of sport and equipment and all those sorts of things have to be factored in. But but I, I firm believe that without it, then we wouldn't be able to deliver the service that we do do. So I see it purely, you know, as an enabler to to achieve the the overarching vision, you know, in surf life saving. So as part of your role, you were managing a million dollar budget and a lot of very experienced and knowledgeable people in the world of surf life saving. Did you experience imposter syndrome during your early career or was this something that you had to manage and, and kind of deal with when you went into your higher CEO roles? Um, no, no, I haven't to be honest. Um, maybe a little bit when I was at canoe racing but because of the relationship between canoe and surf it was, you know, it wasn't a biggie. So no, I, I, I haven't to be honest, haven't experienced that too, too much to be honest. Okay, that's good. Uh, Australia with Bondi Rescue and USA with Baywatch are famous for good-looking lifeguards patrolling the beach. You know, how much of a thrill was it to manage the Blackfins surf life-saving New Zealand team to beat Australia in 2012 on their home beach? Oh, mate, it was pretty amazing, to be honest. I guess the the precursor to that was that, um, you know, I was prior to becoming the team manager, which is a volunteer role, I was, you know, I was still working for Surf Life Saving, and part of my role was looking after the high performance program. And, you know, there are a number of people that, um, that I guess, were involved in, in setting up um, the success, successful run that we you mentioned in the intro, you know, and, you know, Scott Bartlett and, and John Bryant were two people that were the coaches involved in the teams in, in 20, uh, 2008 and then. Um, and then 2010, and they got very close to Australia. You know, we and the we being Scott Bartlett and Jason Pocock and myself were fortunate to, I guess, to take over the team in, in 2011. Um, you know, there was a, there was a, the big thing that we did uh, notify, uh, notice really quickly was that, um, and I saw it when I was working in, as a sport manager, was that we lacked belief. Um, and that's not, um, that's not an indictment on any of the athletes that were involved, but. But we would look, and even as an organisation, we look to Australia and, and you know look at them and think that they were um, the be on end all, and that we had no show to beat to beat them, whether it be you know in our programs in a life saving sense or on the beach. And you know one of the things that, uh, and particularly Jace Pocock did, was instil a real belief within the athletes um, that you know that the Australians were uh, very similar to us, you know, two hands and two legs, and you know that we shouldn't be frightened of them um, and that we should believe in ourselves and, and you know we, we did a lot of work 
um, in 2011 and then in early part of 2012 before we went to the Worlds around uh, having belief in each other, we developed a really neat set of values, um, you know, which were really related around teamwork and, and being there for each other. You know, it wasn't about ourselves. It was, you know, being proud Kiwis. Um, that we had a huge amount of support behind us and um, and that we could do it, you know. And, and the other thing that we did have in that, in that 2012 team was that we had two young superstars who were Kiwis but um, had grown up in, in Australia, Max Beattie and Devin Halligan and, um, Devin Halligan's dad, Daryl Halligan, the the, uh, the the footy player. So those two, you know, I remember quite clearly in our team meetings, you know, would would stand up and and would bring a little bit of, not, I was going to say arrogance, but it's probably not the right word. But going, hey, look, guys, you know, actually, you know, we can do this, and we've got to believe in ourselves. And of course, you know, 2012, Carl, late 2012, we went to the worlds and. Yeah, it's fair to say Australia were pretty stunned. You know, they didn't see um, what happened happening, and uh, it was a pretty special time, as you say, with regard to especially being in Australia and in Adelaide and, and beating them on their home turf. And they didn't take it too well, you know. Um, but uh, it was a yeah pretty memorable moment, I guess, standing up there with the team. Um, because I was never, um, you know, I was never really. A, Top athlete, I won a few medals and IBs and stuff, but um, but I always had a desire to represent my country, and it was always going to be in a, a team, in a manager or you know support type role. So, you know, for me to stand out there with my blazer with the Blackfins logo was it was pretty special, and I'll never forget that. You know, I was fortunate that we went on and got another, another couple of times, and of course it got harder as we went along, but um, very yeah, very special to to do that. So the team went back to back to back, winning three in a row. You know, you talk about those values there. You talk about that confidence. Was that the key to sustained success um, over the might of Australia? Or was some other elements that come into play in in the second and third um, championship? Um, Yeah, no, that was the the real foundation of it, uh, Craig, to be honest. But the other thing that we were really, really hard on was innovation. You know, we weren't going to rest on our laurels. We were going to look at how we could do things better. You know, we were real critical of ourselves as a management group, as well as you know, as an athlete group, we're fortunate to have you know an amazing group of athletes. Um, Andy McMillan was our captain at that time. You know, he'd been to Olympics. Stephen Kent had been to Olympics. So there were some really experienced uh, leaders within the team uh, as well. But you know, we looked at um, I guess we looked at how we could improve, especially within the the pool side of the competition. At the Worlds, you compete on the beach and then also on the pool. Um, you know, and a lot of work had gone on prior to that as well with Scotty Bartlett. He, he really drove that. So we didn't rest. We, we worked really hard. You know, we worked, looked at our processes, you know, from a team management point of view, coaching, and we're real clear around responsibilities um, and various roles. We had an amazing, you know, support group with physio and, and, um, and doctor and, and those. And, and as we went along, I guess we, we brought a few other people into the fold to – not only to um, to bolster the the current campaign, but also to you know to develop those people for the future when the time come that you know Scotty um, stepped down and, and Jason myself. So there was sort of a two pronged attack. And we wanted to create a legacy for the Blackfins, and it was around being one team, you know. And um, we we pushed that down to our junior Blackfins, and you know, in 2018 they won the world title, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, which I. I do believe was a result of what they'd seen of the, the older team and what they'd created and some of the system processes we developed. So, you know, that we went really hard around that. Um, but, it, but yeah, there's no doubt it was based on um, our values. And, and a big one of those key values was belief and, and having belief in ourselves that um, that we could um, we could achieve what we wanted to. But it, it's interesting looking back, you know, like. And I said to the to the kids in the weekend at, at Amari, you know, why well, it's great to win the title and all the rest of it. The probably the most important thing and the thing I reflect most on is that we created, and we have created and been had the fortunate, um, I guess, opportunity to be involved with a neat bunch of people that that I believe are better people for being involved in the Blackfins than than um, than not, if that makes sense. So, and that's not about winning medals. That's just around being a good bugger. A good girl, a good guy, and and you know, and and you know, wanting to achieve and be better, basically, you know, tomorrow than you were today, and that's what we sort of based it on. So while you were you're managing the the world championship winning team, you, you went into a CEO role with Poverty Bay Rugby, and then onto canoeing. 
So canoe racing New Zealand has an extremely rich Olympic history in New Zealand. Well known for legendary gold medals produced by the likes of Ian Ferguson, Paul McDonald and Alan Thompson during the 1980s. You, when you arrived, the sport was surviving on the results of one individual Olympic gold medalist at the time called Lisa Carrington. What was it like for you to take the helm of a sport limited on resources and with so much opportunity? It was pretty daunting, you know, and it's funny and I'll be honest, you know, I, um, uh, the application, oh, sorry, the process, you know, for, um, well, they advertised for the role and I, initially I didn't apply and they went through a process and had a phone call and said, you know, would you like to apply? So I applied and, and there were a number of people who applied the second time around and, you know, so I was a bit hesitant to be honest because I, I guess I did look from where I was within surf life, so I looked at kayaking and, and see, saw it as a very individual type sport, um, you know, amazing history, as you say, but, you know, like other sports, you know, had its had, it, had, had its challenges and, and, and a few issues and personalities and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I was pretty hesitant, um, and, and it wasn't until I sort of got involved and I was like, well, you know, what have I <laughs> what have I done? And I guess that I had a reasonably clear um, uh, vision or goal or what I wanted to achieve um, when I was at Canoe, and... You know, we were fortunate, as you say, with Lisa and I. You know, I'd met Lisa a number of years before and actually coached her and surfed for, for, a, for a season. That's my claim to fame there. But um, but the reality was that, you know, that we needed to build um, a stronger, um, more, um, yeah, I guess a stronger sport. And to do that, we needed to create, um, you know, some programs and, and build the breadth of it with other, with other athletes. And for me... I guess, you know, the two parts. One was to build that, but also I wanted to connect, reconnect with the clubs. So Canoe Racing New Zealand was very focused on high performance. It was very heavily um, funded by high performance sport with regard to the high performance program. You know, um, no sport New Zealand funding um, for the clubs and development of the sport. Um, so there were a few things there that I, you know, really wanted to try and achieve in my, my time that I had there. Yeah. So... How did you approach, you know, you spoke there around it being a very individual sport. So how did you approach changing the culture of the sport, which is, you know, obviously well known for being highly individual? Yeah, I guess, you know, I was, I was really comfortable in the club space. So, I, you know, did some initial work with clubs and got that reconnected um, between the NSO and the clubs um, because that was all my surf background was managing clubs and, and, and those sorts of things. So there was a lot of work that went on there. And then, of course, you know, I was fortunate with the relationship I had with, um, with Lisa and, you know, talked to her about what her aspirations, I guess, were and, and how we could continue to support that while wanting to, to build a program around her. And... Um, both men and women, you know, and, and working with Gordon Walker, her coach, and, and the other support people at the time um, to do that. And, you know, we slowly um, built that up with, you know, with, with Gordy and a number of other people that were involved coaching so that we had a women's squad, you know, and, and, and we had a men's squad. And the reality with the men's squad is that the majority of those men were young uh, young guys who were, you know, it was a long way um, from where they were to, to the Olympics, whereas with Lisa, of course, she was... You know, had one medal and uh, had one medals in um, twenty in twenty twelve. Uh, twenty twelve, so that was cool. And there were a number of girls that were um, were coming through. So uh, slowly but surely, we built those those teams up. But you know, there was some huge challenge in doing that uh, and breaking down a sport that had been based around individuals. Um, you know, to to work through that with with their coaches, with those athletes. You know, we went through, and it's widely known that we went through a number of. Um, sport uh, tribunal uh, challenges around selection because I guess the key piece to um, building the team was around selection and how we were going to select um, team boats and the importance of having team boats. How are we going to select team boats? You know, was it going to be the first, the fastest 4K1 paddlers across the line at nationals would go into a boat and hope that they could paddle together or are we going to do some seat trialling and look at, you know, um, a number of girls in particular that um, could fit and work in a boat um, together um, with, the, with the, I guess, the objective to, to get a, a faster boat than necessarily putting the four fastest K1 paddlers. So there was a whole lot of work that went into that, you know, and, and as I say, there was, yeah, there was some real challenge through that period of time. But, you know, I look back now and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy and, and confident that what we did at the time was the right thing. And, you know, we've got the Olympics in a few months' time and, 
you know, I've got no doubt that that group of girls um, will will be very successful and, 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 and get some great results, whatever they may be. It's interesting that you, you talk about, you know, whether you put the four fastest paddlers or the fastest four people in a boat. Um, and, and it's very similar in the in the world of corporate um, leadership roles, etc. It's not always appropriate to put the four um, most experienced leaders in a team. Um, and it's about building those attributes. So for you, I think when you look at your different roles, how did your leadership change throughout the time? You know, especially when you were there at Canoe Racing, what sort of strengths did you have to really draw on that were unique to you? Um, yeah, I guess the key thing that I reflect on that is um, when I left Surf Lifesaving, Jeff said to me, you know, Mark, um, you've got to become more decisive, you know, and if you don't, then, you know, you're going to struggle. And I guess with Canoe, I had to be very decisive at times. Um, we're <laughs> making some big decisions around um, att- around uh, policy, you know, selection policy, team selection, and then ultimately, you know, whether we would defend, I guess, our um, ourselves in, in in tribunals or in, you know, ultimately in the high court. Um, so being def- decisive, you know, I needed to be, and, and there are times I reflect back on and, and sitting in my office at all hours of the night going, cheapest is this the right decision? But backing my, backing myself, backing, I guess, um, what I believed in, you know, and, and that goes right back to my upbringing and, and with my dad and the family and what I think is right and wrong, you know, and, um, and I guess the, the experiences I developed through surf lifesaving and those things that, you know, that that was the key and, and backing myself and and uh, you know there was a time there where I, you know, if I got it wrong, you know, I guess my reputation and career as a CEO um, could have been in tatters because you know with regards to the court stuff that we went through, you know, if things had gone the other way, then you know it wouldn't have <laughs> wouldn't have been pretty. So, you know, yeah, I guess I reflect on that is is the key thing that i needed to work on and you know i still need to work on it now to be honest you know it's it's an ongoing work on for me that um being decisive and backing myself and and you know as you can imagine you know in those roles you're not going to please everybody in especially high performance sport um you can't so um my personality and, and and that i guess i need to manage because i do like to try and make everybody happy um but um in various times you just can't do that so um yeah that was always a challenge so sport is such an important breeding ground for young people when it comes to their leadership and personal skills where do you see sport in general uh, around the globe sort of hitting over the next few decades yeah well um i guess it's you know within new zealand there's a huge amount of um, work going on to um uh, within sport new zealand around the future of sport for for our younger athletes or people who participate um there's no doubt i mean sports played a huge part in my life and and you know will continue to um so i think you know we've got to i guess we've got to find the right place for it um and what we're trying to achieve with sport um you know it has so many so many benefits to be involved in sport whatever sport it may be or it doesn't have to be sport you know recreation activity being physically active is is all part of that and i think you know from a well-being sense it's really important you know my current role i look at the people that walk the length of the country and in the the the, you know the physical side of that and the well-being that that is achieved and you know i think that's where sport plays a part and i'm not sure that you know sport in the past, is necessarily recognised to the to the appropriate level with investment and support um, for its place. Um, yeah, you know, and don't get me wrong, there you know it goes through st- stages, but but for me, it's um, yeah, it's really important. But I do see, you know, I do see, and again last weekend I saw parents and their expectations around kids and kids sport, and you know we've got to make some big changes there, you know, and. For me, one of the things that's interesting I've always been about, you know, acknowledging the overall club at, at the Ocean Championships, New Zealand Under 14 Ocean Championships. But you know, I, I sort of sat there and thought, you know, what, what are we? Is this for the kids or is this for the adults? Is an adults thing that we name the top club and do the kids actually care? You know, and I've changed my mindset a little bit in the last few days that I actually think we should remove that as an example of, of, of you know, the evolution of sport and, and competitive side of sport. Um, because I actually don't think the kids, yeah, they come second overall or, or won the top trophy or not. Um, it's more of a parents thing and, and the pressure that those parents put on the coaches or the managers or their own kids, you know, to do that is, I think, is just unhealthy. So 
I'm going through a bit of a change, I guess, with regard to that um, and my sort of mindset. But I guess that's part of um, having children. And you know, I have two. Um, my daughter was competing and looking at her and what she's actually wanting to get out of sport. And she just loves hanging with her mates, having fun, catching waves. You know, we we come back after the comp the other day and. 48, all 48 of the kids just went out for a surf and they come in and we put pizzas on, the parents are sitting around and it was just, that was probably the highlight of the whole four-day competition it was just that free, sort of free activity. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't structured. It was really unstructured, but it was, they just had fun with their mates. Yeah, love it. Nothing like uh, good old surf, Kiwi surf uh, after an event. Yeah. So you've transitioned uh, in recent years and gone back to your great outdoors roots and are now the CEO of Te Araroa Trust. Why the change from sport and what is Te Araroa all about? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I guess, um, uh, well, two parts of the question. I mean, Te Araroa is um, our, what we call our New Zealand walkway. It's uh, from one end of um, the country to the other, 3,000 kilometres. Um, it's probably the most diverse sort of walking trail in the world. Um, it's sort of ranked in the top five in the world. There are, you know, there are a number of others across Europe and, and America, but ours is very diverse because um, because one minute you're on a, a mountain, the next you're in a city, and then you're on a beach, and then you're on a road. Um, but it's very young. It, it was officially opened in 2011, you know, um, and, and, and 60% of it is on uh, our Department of Conservation land and the other 40% is mixture, mixture of private land, iwi land, um, councils and those sort of things. So, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting beast. I mean, I guess it takes me back to my park ranger uh, days and, and my, um, you know, passion for the outdoors. It, when I finished at Canoe, and you know, I had five years with Canoe, um, and I, I sort of got to a place where I had to make a commitment whether I was going to continue through to uh, the 2020 you know, Olympics or whether I stood aside. And I was really, you know, really conscious of that. I, part of me wanted to continue. I guess we'd been through a lot of hard work, and I wanted to continue to, I guess, work on that and then and see, you know, and be part of, I guess, the team um, and their success, which I believe is going to happen in a few months' time, or or step aside. And, and yeah, you know, at that time, you know, a number of things were happening with family and the kids and those sorts of things. And I chose to, to step aside to allow, you know, the next chapter of Canoe to happen. And, and this role pa- uh, popped up, you know. It was, uh, it was a, quite different to what I've been doing. But in saying that, you know, very similar with managing stakeholders and volunteers and relationships and all those sorts of things, which, of course, I, you know, I built my skills up and with my other roles so while the i guess the sector was different the role itself is, is similar with regard to the skills that are required so you know it's very different from managing a group of staff to just managing myself and and you know i work from home with this role it was quite different to working in the millennium institute in auckland and now uh, being around a whole lot of people every day was very hard to, <laughs> to adjust to but um yeah i get um yeah i feel fortunate um, that I've got the opportunity to be in the role. It's now two years, um, just clicked over two years in this role. Um, and, you know, I guess I look back at my various roles and, and see them as sort of chapters in the in the organisation and, you know, proud of my, my involvement with surf life-saving and a number of things that we went through there. Um, and, you know, mention, you mentioned briefly the time I had at Poverty Bay and while it was only a year, it was a really neat year in Gisborne and, and did some neat stuff and then, the canoe chapter of I guess of canoe and, and we talked about that already and some of the things that I you know I brought to it and, and you know I'm confident that have sort of helped the sport. Um, so f- same with the other art, you know um, we're working closely at the moment to um, develop a relationship with with government around funding and supporting the trail. At the moment we have no central government funding. Um, if we compare ourselves to the cycleways, which um, get a, a number of millions every year, then you know, we do struggle. So for me, it's around trying to uh, make the trail and the trust sustainable um, because at the moment it's under huge threat. You know, we're getting more and more people walking the length of the country, which is great. Um, but but the funding and the investment in that, in that um, both the infrastructure and the, just the management of it is just not there. So for me, it's, it's, it's you know, trying to um, get the organisation to a more sustainable place so that um, you know, it can continue to grow and flourish. And for me, it, you know, one of the big objectives, and we went through a strategic planning sort of process last year, is that I'd love to see more Kiwis um, do do Tealaroa, not necessarily in one go because not many people have four months to give up and, and, and the rest of it, but across their lifetime, you know, families and young young children, as they grow up, they, they do sections of it. The trails split into 132 different sections. So 
you know, across a lifetime, you know, that it's reasonably achievable. And, you know, I, while it's a bit morbid, but, you know, if you're, if you're counting down your days at the end of your life and you reflect on what things you've achieved, then, you know, it'd be pretty neat to say you walk the length of the country, I, I reckon. And, and I think there's a number of people that are doing sections that probably don't know that they are, you know. So um, that comes back to, you know, the, the signage and, and people just being aware of the thing. And, you know, to be honest, before I was sort of asked to apply, I had I didn't even know about it. So, um, it, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. And, we, you know, we're increasing the sort of coverage and media around it um, and recognition of it. But uh, there's a long way to go. And, and for me, it's, I guess, my objective is really to, try and put it or create more of a sustainable um, organization and in, in, in that for those that, that are involved in it. So you talk about 132 segments there. You know, what would be one or two real key highlights on that trial? You know, what are one or two key sections that will just wow not only uh, tourists from overseas but uh, the Kiwis who haven't adventured into kind of some of the, the, the amazing spots that New Zealand has? That's a good question because one of the questions I get is how much have you done or have you done it, Mark? And unfortunately, I haven't done the whole thing. I, I'd love to, but I have done sections and and that. And, and um, you know, for me and, and my travel school, I do travel, you know, meeting stakeholders. I guess the the key, well, a couple of key areas. Um, one would be Northland, you know, um, uh, Tutukaka and around Tutukaka and, and that. And even further north, there's some pretty amazing sections of, of the trail up there. And the beauty with those is that you can do those all year round um, in real terms because of the weather. Um, and then the other, I guess the other part for me would be, you know, in the middle of the South Island down Arthur's Pass, you know, walking through, you know, some mountains and some of the high country stations there is, is pretty amazing. The rivers, the you know, say the mountains. Um, but again, it's a bit restricted there with regard to the time of year people can do it. Um, but as I say, you know, it's so diverse that, um, that you know, with beaches and, 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 and um, mountains and, 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 as I say, even some of the private, you know, stations, farms are, are pretty spectacular. Um, so, yeah, look, I, often people um, sort of um, disregard the North Island section of it. Um, which is interesting, I guess, especially from overseas. They come and do just do the South Island. But the way I look at it, and the sort of you know, grant to learn this is that that is it is a <laughs> it's a bit of a cliche, but it is a um, a trail of two parts. One, you know, being the north, one being the south. But it's, the north is very much about the people and the people you meet. And the beauty of doing Te Araroa is that you know whether you're a Kiwi or a visitor, you know, there's some amazing people that um, what we call trail angels that live along the trail who just basically live to help and support those that are walking it. You know, they put them up, they welcome them into your home, they give them a feed, they give them a shower, they can camp on their front lawn. And, and these people just are genuine good Kiwis who, who just love the concept and, and really just want to support people. Um, and so the North Island's very much about the people. And then the South, of course, as we all know, is very much about the um, the environment and the, and the landscape, you know, and, and there are sections in, in, in going back, a neat section is the Richmond Range. is very challenging um, out of Nelson, but there's 10 days there where you, you know, you, there's no civilization for 10 days and that's incredibly uh, exposed and can be challenging and, and weather is a real crucial part of that part of the, part of the trail. But, um, yeah, amazing, amazing uh, scenery, you know, being up on the tops and looking and, some lakes, you know, beautiful lakes and, and those sorts of things. So, it's yeah, it's an interesting beast is the other word that I call it because it is a beast. Um, it's, you know, 3,000 Ks, one person. I'm fortunate to have some really neat volunteers along the way. But, um, you know, it is, it is you know, always changing, very dynamic environment. You know, there are people getting lost now and then and, you know, we get washed out with some major storms that we've had this summer. Um, so, it's a, it's a very uh, interesting our role and, and very um, stakeholder type um, important or well, stakeholders are crucial you know whether it be the landowners the dock staff the councils or whatever it may be and that ongoing relationship stuff is really important and when it was started Jeff Chapel, who was the person that started it you know a lot of the access uh, wasn't there and he walked it and, and negotiated it along the way and there are still still areas where it's very much based on a handshake which is Again, not very sustainable, but um, we're working to tidy that up. But we're fortunate with a good wall of, of a number of Kiwis that we are able to access and, and go through their land. Um, so, yeah, it's, but that yeah, has its challenges with regard to the ongoing need to invest in, in, in infrastructure along the way. 
what an what an amazing uh, walk and, and project that you've got there. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Um, oh, probably a month ago, actually. Um, um, my daughter, I mentioned before a few times, and I have got a son as well I haven't talked too much about, but um, she's a very good swimmer, and um, I've been really wanting to get into triathlon, um, and I've never done triathlon before, And um, but the old body's not what it used to be. So um, we got together and did uh, a first triathlon as a team. So um, I was on the bike, which my knees could handle, and she swam and a friend of ours run. So um, that was pretty cool. You know, she's 12. Um, and it was pretty neat to, to be able to do that. And since then, we've done a couple more. So, and we've got another one, you know, in a couple of weeks' time. So, I've really, uh, yeah, that was really neat. And, and it, I guess a special thing was to you know, find the kids. So, uh, that was cool. Yeah, brilliant. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I definitely think my life's. A little bit ordinary, but in saying that, you know, I guess I look back and and often sort of forget some of the achievements that that I've that I've have have had, you know, and and I have been, I guess, uh, very fortunate to to have those experiences and lessons and learnings, and even the, some of the stuff that I talked about with canoe, you know, I look back on that and what was tough at the time, I learned a lot, and you know, I guess without those challenges, um, you. You know, you can't be a better person, and I've talked a lot about that with the athletes I've been worked with. So, for me, yeah, I'm fortunate, I guess, if, you know, to, to be to have a life that I have had, and you know, I've got a lot more to offer, and look forward to continuing to learn and and um, build on that. Uh, that what I would say would be a little bit ordinary, but others probably would suggest it might not be. So, what is the one question that you would love to solve? Well, I guess it's quite topical, mate, and some people might think it's a bit silly and may think I'm a little bit dumb, but I, I guess with the coronavirus right now, and, and, and I'm not you know, not making a joke of it at all, but, but I do wonder why people are buying toilet paper um, and why why it's toilet paper. You know, I know people are buying sand, um, hand sanitizer and stuff, but why are people buying so much toilet paper? I just I just don't get that, you know? And when they could buy all sorts of other stuff if they could get concerned about, you know, being stuck at home. But I guess uh, yeah, that would be that would be the question that I haven't got my head around. I think there's a lot of people asking that same question around the world right now. So so Mark has been a great discussion today and lots of excellent insights and what an incredible adventure you have had um, throughout your career. How can people learn more about what you do? And if people want to connect with you, what is the best way they can do that? Oh, yeah. Look, I'm, um, I guess, you know, I've been fortunate to have a number of mentors and still do, and, and I help a few people out, and I really, really enjoy that. So no, I'm, I'm more than you know, happy for people to drop me a line, probably on my email address, um, and, and connect that way. And, and uh, yeah, I can share experiences. And, you know, I, I always, I guess, look at, um, back in the day, talking to a mentor, and you know, are you are you coming to for mentoring? Are you coming for coaching? And I guess the definition he gave me of that was, um, yeah, as a mentor, I can you can give me ask me the question, and I can I can give you the answer, or I or I can in a mentor sense, or I can help you through coaching and and uh, help you find the answer. So you know, I'm real mindful of that. I guess that's my sort of definition of mentoring and coaching and, and I'm really happy to do either. I can reflect on a lot of um, experiences and and say, hey, look, if I was you, this is how I'd do it. Or I could help you through to, to get to a place that you've come up with the answer. So more than happy to, to, to do that. Excellent. Well, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed sort of learning about your early days and and how you got exposed to surf life saving and the world of uh you know leadership at such a young age your your insights into the world of adventure and being outdoors and being involved in sport and how how your leadership grew through your roles uh, it was quite insightful um, to understand how you coped in different situations where you would you would deal with say clubs on a on a local level or you'd even be dealing with stakeholders on a trail and and to deal with elite athletes at a world championship level uh, is, is quite remarkable 
So I thank you very much for a wonderful conversation today and I look forward to you know, seeing the Tiara uh, Trust trail continuing to grow in people's, uh, the visibility of it and people getting out there and walking and enjoying the great outdoors and being a part of nature. So thank you very much for your time today, Mark, and I look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. Thanks, Craig. I've really, uh, really enjoyed the opportunity and uh, it's, it's a good way to sort of reflect on on my own learnings as well and, and going through this process. So yeah, thank, thanks heaps for the opportunity. On today's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about your dreams don't stop. Have you felt like the wind has been taken out of your sails and you have taken a step back from your dreams? Your dreams don't stop because hard work turned up. This is your calling, your time to step up and take ownership of your dreams. Because dreams don't come easy. So embrace the pain, embrace the hard work, and you will be rewarded. Start with three steps to reconnect with your dreams. Number one, push the reset button. Number two, reconfirm your dreams. And number three, take action from today. Thank you for listening to a brilliant conversation with Mark Weatherall, leading the great outdoors on the Active CEO podcast. Has your phone rung yet? You know, have you been going through the motions and content with life and then you get a wake-up call? Who answered when that phone rang? The world we've been accustomed to has been flipped upside down and on its head recently. What have you learned about yourself? Here are three ways to understand what you are learning right now. Number one, find some time to reflect on how you have been living your life. Number two, what has COVID-19 showed you in the way that you have been living that life? And number three, write down how you will upgrade yourself for the future. It helps to have someone who can provide an external view of your world and ask the right questions to fully understand what you have learned during a reflective phase like COVID-19. That's where Active CEO coaching comes into play. Right now, I'm providing complimentary 30-minute calls to help you understand what you have learned and develop out a roadmap for the future. Please don't hesitate to contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of www.craigjohns.com.au website. I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.